Bibles, please, if you haven't already turned there, to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy. It's good to be back with you. I was on a family vacation this last week to Ellensburg. When we first started this trip to Ellensburg, my kids were very young, and we called it our redneck trip. Um, but that was before we lived in Yakult. It's just normal hats <laughs> out there. Uh, we, we drive through the mud, go by and shoot things, chase rattlesnakes, all kinds of fun stuff. But it's good to be back. It's good to be back together. All right, let's pray one more time as we, we turn to the Word. Father, I just, um, so many things this morning. Thank you for baby dedications. Thank you for the, the remembrance that we celebrate in communion. <clears throat> Thank you for the conversations we're able to have, the handshakes, the hugs, um, the new acquaintances that hopefully will become fast friends as we look to wor- worship together down the road. Thank you for your church here. And as we turn to your Word, may it uh, fill us. Um, and do what it does. Um, uh, help us to grow in our understanding of you, and our walk with you, and our sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I don't know if you've heard of, the, it's an ancient story, about uh, two travelers and the bear. In it, it describes this, this scary encounter. Two friends, they're traveling on this road, and they happen to notice this big old gnarly bear coming down the path towards them. Well, one traveler, in great fear, obviously, giving no thought to his friend, shimmies up the only tree that is there. The other friend, terrified, of course, not having anywhere to go, remembers that if he plays dead, that oftentimes bears will show no interest. And so he just drops to the ground and plays, and plays dead. And the, the bear comes along, and as he, he sees the man on the ground, he, he sticks his, his nose down and kind of nuzzles around by his head, sniffs, pats a little bit, stays there for just a moment. Then he lifts his head and he saunters off down the path. And after some time, the man who was up the tree, feeling it is safe, he comes back down the tree And he asks the friend who's now getting off the ground, dusting himself off, he said, I I couldn't help but to notice that bear must have said something to you as his mouth was right by your ear that whole time. And the friend that was on the ground, he said, yeah, it's no secret what the bear told me. He said that I should be careful of keeping company with those who, when danger arises, abandon you. Uh, Such a story like this, I believe, would have probably evoked a response from the Apostle Paul, pretty similar to what it evoked from you, maybe a wry smile or a subtle laugh, because Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew what it was like to be abandoned by his friends. You read his letters, and you see oftentimes throughout his letters the many different times that people that were close to him deserted him. And with Paul, with some of these friends, I'm sure it would have been probably tolerable for friends to abandon him physically, like just to leave. But I think what must have been more difficult for Paul was when friends who he had been in life and ministry with abandoned him theologically. That their message and their hope in the gospel of Jesus changed and they started to pervert and bring in heresies. And Paul then would have to 
work at drastic measures to to um, deal with the the trouble that, that they would cause within different churches. The man Timothy that we've been studying, both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, does not fall under this category of a friend who betrayed or abandoned him physically or theologically. Timothy was a very close, dear friend, and they had this close bond, and we see it in many of different Paul's writings. Now, every every leader like Timothy finds themselves in a a battle of sorts, in, in a situation that is difficult. And as you look at the title of the sermon, if you've got notes here, the title is Positively Leading, Positively Leading. And before I just jump in real quick, I just want to make sure that we all know that we are talking about leadership here. Uh, This is a a letter from the Apostle Paul, who is a missionary, pastor, church planter, to a young man, Timothy, who was the apprentice pastor at the church of Ephesus. And so the instruction certainly applies to that pastoral role. But if we look and and spread the principle a little broader, we can realize that every one of us, and this is what I want us all to know, every one of us is a leader of sorts. We all have influence, regardless of our age, um, regardless of our gender, we all have influence in other people's lives. Even, even young kids have influence. Middle schoolers, you have influence in your home over your, your siblings. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon, too, for, for, for kids, uh, school-age kids, to have influence in their parents' lives. I, I think of my own life, some of the lessons that I've learned have come from my kids. And so you also could flip the other end of that spectrum and say, well, uh, I'm, I'm kind of in my golden years and I'm retired and I don't have a lot of interaction. It doesn't matter. We still have influence. You still have influence. You have grandkids. You have neighbors. You have a church family. Um, and then everywhere in between that scale, we have is we have people that there's a word in, in scripture called oikos. It's the Greek word for household or family. They, they thought of it a little bit differently than we think of it in our Americanized view of, of culture. But an oikos was really um, the, the people that you had the closest relationships with. It didn't necessarily mean your biological family, especially in the early church when families were split apart when people followed Christ. And so your oikos was a group of people in which you had influence with. And if you look at statistics today, they would say that, you know, you can have, you have roughly 8 to 12 people within your life in which you have an influential role. These are the people that you're closest to. And so just kind of getting that kind of out of the way as we think about leadership today, this really does apply broadly to all of us because we all do have influence in one way or another. Now, when it comes to that, you're going to hear me say a lot today, I'm talking about three different categories of people. We're going to talk about positive, negative, and neutral people. Positive, negative, and neutrals. And what Paul was dealing with was, was guys that had abandoned him theologically and physically that were negatives within the life of the church and within the life of the ministry of, of the early church days. And, and this negative ministry, there was guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus. We're going to read about them in just a moment. But these guys were like a cancer that came in and infiltrated the church and, and sadly broke the church apart in many different ways. And what they did was they took this negative influence that they had, this negative leadership, and they, they pulled people that were neutral from the church and in the faith with them into this negative place, which is why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, which Dr. Bob covered last week, it said that they are upsetting the faith of, of some. So 
Every one of us falls into one of these three categories, positive, negative, or neutral. And the question for us today is like, which one is you? Which category is you? Which area? But we're not just talking about necessarily, are you a positive person in the, the humanistic sense? Like, are you a happy, positive person? I mean, it's nice to be around happy, positive people. And we know what negative, you know, emotionally sapping kind of people are like. And then we know what people that are neutral are like. We're talking about something a little bit more deep than that. We're talking about, in a spiritual sense, being positively being positive in a spiritual sense, in a negative sense, in a neutral sense, because that's what this is dealing with. Now, if you have your notes in your bulletin, you'll see at the top of your notes just the, the description or definition of what a positive, a positive person would look like. A positive one is those who do gospel things in gospel ways for gospel reasons. Gospel things in gospel ways for gospel reasons, and this simply means that these people are trusting, they're supportive, they're encouraging, they oftentimes, they oftentimes bring and um, build bridges. They mediate conflict. Positive people bring health to the life of church and the relationships with their in. Um, they work for the good of the gospel. They work for the good of Christ. They're a blessing because they humbly want the gospel to win. Positives are prone to take neutrals. We'll talk about neutrals in a minute. To take neutrals and turn neutrals into positives. And also, as they do this, Positives tend to neutralize the negatives, the negative voices. So let's talk about the negatives. The negatives, simple, definition is the same, virtually, except the opposite. Those who do ungospel things in ungospel ways for ungospel reasons. These are people that are distrusting, they're unsupportive, they're discouraging, they're, they're divisive, they burn bridges. They are oftentimes driven by bitterness from past hurts. They're oftentimes a source of criticism and conflict within the life of the church and individual lives. Negatives bring sickness, division, trouble. And the reason <coughs> they do this, the reason they do this is because, and this is key, they're more interested in their own agenda. They're more interested in their own cause. They're more interested in building their own little kingdom than they are for the gospel. And, and so this causes all kinds of problems. And unfortunately, negatives, they tend to draw and like a magnet, other negatives towards them, as well as they seek out and they, they take prey on those who are neutral within the life of the church. Now, neutrals. <clears throat> neutrals. Who are neutrals? Neutrals are, are believers that are in varying stages of their spiritual growth. So these are, they're not necessarily leaders per se. They might be categorized more as a follower, but neutrals are oftentimes caught in the middle. They're the ones that are caught in the middle between the, the positives and the negatives. And um, really, whether you become, if you're a neutral and you become a positive or negative, it's kind of dependent upon your, your associations, the, the friends that you hang out with, uh, the people that you listen to, the books that you read, the teachers that you sit under. That's kind of what neutrals will will be. Now, Paul in this message is warning. He's warning both the neutrals not to give in to the negatives, and he's also supporting Timothy as a positive, encouraging him to stay a positive virtually, because, I mean, let's be honest, I, I myself, and I don't think I'm one of them, but I know pastors who are negative and neutrals, so he, he, wants, he obviously wants Timothy to remain a positive influence on the church, so he, he's teaching him how he can draw these neutrals as well as neutralize the negatives. So with that, let's read our text. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going we're gonna to do verses 14 
through 19 is what we will read. 14 through 19, it says this. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we're going to look here, and if you've got notes, um, you've got six points. Don't be intimidated by that. I normally try to keep it around three-ish or so. Um, But there's six, and um, you should be happy about six because um, there were actually nine, and I cut it down to six. And um, there's going to be six more next week, unless I can cut it down from that as well. So um, we're going to look at this. What does it look like to positively lead? With the influence you have, what does it look like to positively lead? And, and the, first, the first one we see here in our text is, is to emphasize what we are for, what we are for and not what we are against. Positively emphasize what you are for and not what you are against. Look at verse 14. It says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. What are the things he's talking about? Obvious question. What things? We we know the number one tool in Bible interpretation is context, context, context. So we can look back at all of the chapters so far, but really we want to look at just the the three verses right before, 10 through 13. Dr. Bob preached on this last week. It says this, If we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, what what he's talking about here, what Paul's getting at is that we are about the gospel. What we are for is the gospel. And this just simply means we're about the good news. We're about the good news of Christ. We're about good newsing people, rather than what many say happens with a lot of Christians is bad newsing people. I've heard that story. Even we had a great first membership class this morning and just hearing the testimonies of the next membership class, just hearing people how they've had experiences um, with some bad newsing in their church experience. And I think many of us could probably point to different people who have been bad newsing or at least bad rapping the gospel. But we're about the gospel of Christ. And um, our fundamentalist ancestors, uh, we would learn a lot from them um, and their sins for, for finding such things that we can avoid. You see, fundamentalism may have started out with good intentions, and I can't do the whole summary of fundamentalism in just a, a brief subpoint of the sermon, but basically the idea with the fundamentalists is there's, there's, uh, they look out and they see where some Christians struggle, and so to keep other Christians from struggling with those things, they develop they develop. Um, rules to follow, and when those rules are followed, then you're good. And what un- unfortunately what happens is over time, and especially if you grew up in a fundamentalist context, you know this, but the rules become the standard. 
It's not about Jesus. It's not about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about walking in the spirit of Christ. It's instead about following the rules. And so they get focused on all these kind of second-tier issues. And so you can't play cards. And, and um, that starts out with, you know, you can't play Texas Hold'em. But in some fundamental places, you, you can't just play, you can't play rummy, which I would never have a relationship with my grandma if I couldn't play rummy. But you can't play rummy. And then other groups, no, not even goldfish. Uno, none of those things, because that eventually is going to lead you to a place that other people have been led to. And it could be that. It could be things like movies. Um, there's different settings um, that I've seen where, you know, you can't, you can't um, wear certain clothes. You can't watch certain things on TV, which may or may not be, be bad. You certainly, you certainly could never even think about drinking alcohol or associating with those that do um, you, you certainly can't like Democrats or <laughs> Pentecostals or other categories, whatever the category is. Um, you can't like those things. And when you do, then you all of a sudden are in the bad favor of the church. And, and unfortunately, identities get wrapped around this and whole ministries get wrapped around about what you're not about. You get known for what we're against, not what we're for, but we're for the gospel, we're for people coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we kind of forget that when we get focused on second-tier issues, issues that tend to divide as rather, than, rather than proclaim the good news of Christ. And, and I get this. Uh, I, I've, seen, I've seen why things get this way, but when they get out of whack, it's a really sad thing. He says, remind them of these things. And I love verse 13. If we are faithless, and I could say, that's me, that's every one of us, we've all sinned, and we all go through seasons where we, we struggle, we, we fail, we fall, right? We are not always faithful. We talk about faithfulness in the introduction of this sermon series. We're not always faithful, but, but God is faithful, which is a great thing. And so as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he's the faithful one. And he showed his faithfulness through what we are for, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are to be known for, the things that we are for, and we're for Jesus. And frankly, believe it or not, we're actually for people too. Shocker, we are for people. We're for people coming to know the Savior and growing in him, not getting a bunch of people to jump through hoops and jump through um, a bunch of religious observances. So, um, secondly, we see in our text here, the second half of verse 14, we positively direct the conversation or we positively take our words and we invest them into the situation. Well, look at verse 14 at the second half. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does, not, does no good but only ruins its hearers. So just brace yourself here, twice today, once next week, unless, I, unless it comes up a second time, but there's three times in this short section of scripture where Paul specifically breaks out uh, and talks about quarrelsome, divisive talk, speech, all of these things. And next to context, context, context in Bible interpretation is repetition. And he repeats this theme three times in these verses. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So this word quarrels here, um, he qualifies that. He just says, quarrels but also ruins its hearers. 
And he's not suggesting that as followers of Jesus, we don't have healthy and even maybe, maybe even sparring discussions about doctrine at times. There's, there's certainly a key aspect to a healthy church that, that you, you look at the doctrine and, and you discuss that. We've done whole sermon series on, on our doctrinal statements, and that's, that's an important part. But what he is talking about is he's saying we don't get stuck on second-tier issues. We don't get stuck on, on all of these other things that are, that are worthless talk. And we all have known this, right? We've known churches that have split over carpet colors or split over whether or not there's an electric guitar or worship or drums in the band. We know, we know different situations where um, translations of the Bible, if you don't use a certain translation of the Bible, then you're out, then you're not allowed. And so there's this, all of this divisiveness that, that takes place and essentially, Paul is telling Timothy, as a positive, as a shepherd, charge the negatives in your church not to fight over the things that don't truly matter, over the secondary issues. Because what that does is that ruins. It ruins those neutral believers. And it also makes us stink to the world around us. I have oftentimes, not oftentimes, but I've had times in my short time here at the church where, where certain people will come in and they have agendas that they want to push. And it has to do with some weird belief systems that are, to me, not, certainly not sound biblically. They take one verse out of context and they make up all of these, these observances based upon this. And, um, and I'll just stop and say, let's just pretend that this is an actual, um, an actual observance that we might instill. How does that, how do you explain, you have to have like a secret decoder ring from, from a Captain Crunch box to even understand what you're talking about? Where does this come from? It, it just becomes, it becomes a, 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 a destructive tool. And the purpose of why we are here as God's children, which is to love people and to glorify God. But when we make up all these rules, eh, it just doesn't work very. So Timothy, be a positive shepherd and, and tell these people not to fight over things or quarrel over these things because it only ruins the hearers. And I, I really do think this is a good word for us as a church right now in the current stage of where we are at as a church. Because we've been in a 15-year building process as a church. And now here we are. We're coming down to where the rubber meets the road with this building. We've got the design of the building. Um, we, we've got the land in place. We're still trying to work on timeline. We're sure that God is calling us to build this building. We just quite don't know exactly as, how quickly is that going to be. And the, the step that we're in right now that we're just starting, and you're going to hear more about it over the six months, which will lead up to the time in which we, as a church, will will commit to how we're going to support financially and with our resources that new church building. And in that time, what we're going to be asking all of us who call this our church home to do is to purpose within your own heart, what is the Lord calling you to sacrificially give to this building project? And whenever money comes up in, in churches, that can tend to spur on negativity. And I'm committed to not let that happen. I think our leadership is committed not to happen. And I really believe, as I talk with all of you, you're committed to not let that happen too. But it's still going to be a temptation for us as we walk through this process. Because we do believe that God is calling us to do this not so that we can have a new building, but so that we have a place in which greater ministry can take place. I love the fact that the building was designed by you guys with the, the main question of how can we as a, as a church uh, most love this community with the gospel. And the, the building was designed with that purpose in mind. And so it's exciting to see, but I think it's important that we are very digil, di, digilant. That's not the right word. 
diligent <laughs> to, to stay focused on that, on that point. Okay. Now, the word here, um, the word here back to our text is Greek. Or is <laughs> the word here for ruin in the original language is the word catastrophe. That's what that word means, catastrophe. And one of the marks of a positive leader and positive leadership is that they invest their words, they invest them well, so that the con- con- conversation does not go in a catastrophic direction. So that the conversation doesn't split people, drive a wedge between people. And it's important to think and keep that at the heart of our conversations with people. And this is something that comes up, not just in church, but it comes up in our homes, it comes up in our marriages. How oftentimes we let uh, an argument become a catastrophe in a relationship, or we let an argument or a disagreement with children become a catastrophe relationally with our kids. So it's something we need to be, as, as gospel-centered people that do gospel-centered things in gospel-centered ways, we are very careful to direct the conversation and to invest our words wisely. And there are so many supportive texts throughout all of the Bible. Ephesians 4, 429 is one of those. Thirdly, positively, positively do your best. Positively do your best. Paul is telling Timothy, do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, um, when he talks about this, he's, he's not referring to so-called excellence. Excellence is a, um, a, an idol in a lot of churches today. I, I visited at a church uh, this last week when I was in Ellensburg, and uh, it was just interesting to go in there. And boy, I'll tell you, everything was excellent, like excellent, super excellent, like super excellent. Um, they were excellent. Um, <laughs> It was very sanitized. Um, I don't know if this church does this, but there's a lot of churches out there that will not allow anyone on their band unless they're a professional musician. These guys were very excellent in their music and everything else. And, and um, I, I intentionally did not go to criticize. I personally just went to worship myself. It was nice just to be in church, you know, and, and not have to be the preacher for once, you know. But it was just nice to be there and to worship. They're nowhere near as awesome as you all. But it, still, it was, it was excellent to be there. And Paul's not talking about excellence here. He's not talking about you have to be excellent. He's also not talking about, which I appreciated Dr. Bob covering last week, he's not talking about perfection when he says do your best. Um, I heard in the, I could hear people's hands being raised um, as he asked those of you who are parents, um, have any of you as parents, are, are, have you been perfect in your parenting? And uh, or if you made mistakes in your parenting, and a lot of, I guess a lot of hands went up with that. But he's not talking about excellence, and he's not talking about per- perfection, but he is talking about diligence. He's talking about being diligent. He's talking about doing your absolute best. He's talking about letting your sweat be made known, and then trusting God with all the results. Giving your all and trusting him with the results. So it's good to remember that we work, and we do work, and we do work, and we do it for God. We do it for God. We give our best to him. We don't do it for other people. We don't do it to please people. Um, and this is so easy for me. I can go home after a Sunday sermon and I can just beat myself up emotionally like I had more than five points or I, I had, it went too long or too short and you can just kind of beat yourself up. But it's so nice to remember, no, no, no. I don't pastor to please you. I pastor to please God. I work my best to please God. And this is the same thing as well as in our parenting. 
We don't, we don't parent to please our kids. We parent to please the Lord. We want to see our kids grow up in the, 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 the beauty of walking with Jesus. That's why we parent our kids, not to please anybody but the Lord. Same thing in our marriages. We don't strive for the perfect marriage so that we have the perfect marriage. We strive for a good, healthy marriage. We do our very best. We give it our, our all. We are, especially as men, we're to die to our own desires and our own self for the sake of, of radically loving the, the people in our lives. No one more than our wives. That's what we are to do. But we don't do this because we just want to be the best. We do this because we trust God with this. And we're doing this as unto the Lord. And we trust him with the results. We don't trust ourselves. That's what we do for this. And so when we do this, the beauty is when we do our best, when we do this, we need not be ashamed. We need not be ashamed. Other people might be. Negatives tend to, tend to never be satisfied with, with others. But that's because negatives are doing their best to accomplish their own goals and their own causes and in doing this they become a catastrophe on the faith of of others but positives positives have this strong dogged resolve to see the good newsing of jesus go forward so we so we are positively reminded that of the things that we're for not the things that we're against we're positively to direct the conversation and we're positively to work hard to do our best and to trust god with all of the results fourthly Fourthly, we positively study harder. We positively study harder. A huge component in doing our best is studying hard. And we do this by verse 15, which is rightly handling the, rightly handling the word of truth. A few months ago, right up here, uh, we did baptisms, and it was one of our awesome high schooler, Calvin, was baptized, and he, he shared the verse, this verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. He recited it from memory, um, and he did that because that is recited every single week by all of our kids together out loud at Awana. And that stuck with him. And it was something he wanted to mark that day with, with that memory verse. And what a great memory verse that is for our kids and for, for really for, for all of us. Now, he used it in the King James Version, which uses the, the, the translation rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, so there's kind of some interpretive difficulties with this, this concept, but most of the translators agree that that literally means um, to cut a straight line, to cut a, a straight line. And I'm not, um, I'm not nowhere near as smart as a lot of these guys, so when I think of this, I think of it in more simple terms. If it means literally to cut a straight line, then that doesn't mean that I cut a crooked line. I cut, a, I cut a straight line, and, and to illustrate this, um, when I was 10, my parents took my family on a, on a trip to the East Coast to visit the capital and a whole bunch of the historical sites out there, and quickly, one of my highlights of that trip was going to, I don't know if it was Monticello or Monticello, but it was the home of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson was um, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, he was our third president. And uh, it was fun to tour his house and just to see how he did things. But I remember um, hearing that he had his own, his own version of the Bible out. You can go on Amazon, which I do not recommend. You can go on to Amazon and you can get it. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Here's a picture of it. I don't know how well you can see that. That's in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. But that's the Jefferson Bible. And what he did in his Bible is he went through and took... Um, a knife or scissors, whatever sharp object he had at the time, and he cut out every portion that dealt with any of the miraculous that Jesus was a part of. 
he cut out any area that dealt with Jesus' deity because he didn't believe Jesus was God. So what he did was he made his own version of the Bible and he took out everything that referenced the deity of Jesus. I don't know if there's a better description of cutting crooked than that. It's pretty sad. I remember as a 10-year-old asking my dad, like, that just doesn't seem right. You can't do that. But it's funny, in doing a little bit more research on that this week, how many people praise him for that approach, his humanistic approach to faith. And it's, it's sad, but, but you, don't, you know this as well as I do. There's a lot of crooked cutting going on today. A lot of crooked cutting that takes place. And Lord, help us. Lord, give us the discernment that we're not doing any silent cutting crooked in our own hearts as it relates to different truths within Scripture. Dr. Bob last week referenced, again, how our world, we live in this pluralistic world where everyone's truth is their own truth. Everyone, you follow your own heart. It's whatever you feel is best for you. Well, if, if that's the case, let me just tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you don't have your own truth. We don't have our own truth. We have the truth of God's word. That's what we stand upon. That's what we have. And this is a pivotal point in, in the life of, of all believers, but especially for neutrals in the church, to become either a positive or a negative. Uh, to move to the positive, your truth becomes the word of God. Your identity, your choices, your actions, my choices, my actions, they're driven by the gospel of Jesus more than driven by anything else. They take up residence in him. A neutral becomes a positive when they die to self and they die to their own agenda and they live for the betterment of Jesus and his gospel. A neutral becomes a negative they become a negative when instead of standing on the truth of the Bible, they get drawn into secondary issues. They start doing some cutting of their own crookedly. They get drawn into controversy, conspiracy theories, or when they insist on making their agenda everyone else's agenda. And neutrals are, are, are constantly vulnerable to this within the church. So that leads fifthly. Paul says, positively avoid getting drawn into endless arguments. This is the second mention of our arguments and the words that we get caught up in. Avoid irreverent battle, babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene is, right? This is an inflammation that takes place, um, and if it's left unchecked, unchecked, there becomes this severe inflammation that takes place, and virtually the body starts to eat itself alive. He says another translation simply uses the word cancer, and we all know what that is. The word there, spread, that word, um, that's a telling word. It's an interesting word. It was fun to come across this this week. That word actually means pasture. It means pasture. In the same way that we would have pastures for our animals to graze on, the negatives and their irreverent babble, it provides a pasture land for the neutrals to feed on their ungodly cancerous filth. So in this context, Paul's telling Timothy, in your pasturing, you cannot allow the negatives to make a pasture land where the neutrals will feed on this filth. Oddly enough, this is what's interesting too, oddly enough, this is where negatives in the church, where negatives can ironically become a blessing of sorts. And I, I don't know, I wonder sometimes, like, Lord, why, 
why do you allow negatives in your church? Why do you allow this to take place? I mean, my life would be a lot easier. Uh, a, lot, a lot of your lives would be a lot easier if you didn't have negatives, right? Um, but then I remember Jesus. He might have had a negative or two in his life and in his ministry. And, uh, and he dealt with that. And, well, he's Jesus, but he dealt with that in a great way. Um, but regardless, this, this becomes a blessing because um, w- what happens is uh, when, when um, these negatives come into the church, it drives the positives to dig into the word. It drives the positives to seek out sound doctrine. It drives the positives and hopefully the neutrals to a place where they study harder. And they become this ironic blessing because they push us to know the word of God better. They push us to be ever more rooted in the love and the grace and the gospel of, of Jesus. And it teaches the positives to do better at their shepherding as leaders of the flock. So, leaders of the flock. Speaking of leaders of the flock, let's hit our sixth and final point this morning. Positively warn the sheep of the wolves. Positively warn the sheep of the wolves. Who are these wolves? Verse 17 and 18, Paul names the names here. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. In study this week, I was reminded of uh, earlier in 1 Timothy, this name, Hymenaeus, it came up, but it came up associated with another friend of his named Alexander. And these are two guys that Paul virtually kicked out of the church, excommunicated from the church because of their blasphemous heresies. Um, Paul seemed confident that Hymenaeus, as well as Alexander, uh, were solid negatives. They were unteachable, they were inflexible, they weren't submissive, they weren't there for the betterment of the gospel of Christ, they were there to push their own heresies, their own agendas. Um, oftentimes these negatives want to have a voice. They want to have this teaching role. They want to have a presence, but they themselves aren't teachable. Um, What's interesting here, as I think about this, it's like, well, if he, Paul, kicked out Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy, which was about five years earlier, why is Hymenaeus back in the picture? And why is Paul writing about him again? I mean, it's been five years. He was kicked out of the church. Why is he coming up? And now why is he coming up with this, this new crony named Philetus? Why is that? Well, Um, There's speculation on that. Um, Most people seem to think that, well, when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he was a missionary. He was out and about. He was a traveling missionary and church planner. At any point in time, and it even is represented in his words to Timothy as he starts, he hoped to come to Timothy soon. So when he kicked out Hymenaeus back then, there was the possibility that he could just show up again at the church. And so Hymenaeus stayed away. But when he writes 2 Timothy... This letter here is written from, you can't see it, but um, you can see it on the front page of your bulletin. That's behind that lettering is the the cell in Rome, which it's believed that Paul wrote this letter in, was in that actual picture that you see. And he was stuck in that cell, and he had no way to visit Timothy. And so it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that this wolf, Hymenaeus, because Paul can't show up and, you know, give him the what for, he goes and he picks on the young pastor Timothy and the vulnerable flock that was there. Um, I don't know, I've I've had to do this a few times, uh, not very many, I'm glad it doesn't happen very often, but a few times where I've had to sit down with people that that, um, we've warned over and over again about their, their, um, their 
ungodly talk, their quarrelsome nature. They might have great gifts in one sense, but they're just very disruptive, divisive in the way that they go about their church life. And I have to sit down and basically say, I love you, but you are a toxic person. Uh, Or in this context, you're a negative, and you just can't be here because you don't get it. And um, unfortunately, what almost always happens in those contexts and it gets worse. I'm, this happened a couple times in youth ministry and social media when I was early youth pastor wasn't a thing yet. But um, it's really tough with social media and, and that kind of thing today. But they'll, they'll get in, they'll, they'll cry crocodile tears, they'll talk about how the church was so mean and negative to them, and they'll start to draw people to themselves and, and get these hearers that will, um, that will start to listen to what they're saying, and then they'll start to question the authority of the church leadership that's in their church, and then it causes these divisions and strife. And, and that's, because, that's because they're wolves. They don't play by the rules. They're very cunning, they're very manipulative, and they're deceptive for a reason, because they're cunning and manipulative, and they have this ability to draw people in as a predator draws in its prey. And they, they prey on the neutrals, they prey on the people that have compassionate hearts, which is, which is a really sad, sad thing. And this is why protecting neutrals is so important. It's so important because negatives never play nicely, they don't play fair. They look at leveraging and lingering remaining relationships, trying to convert people to their own ways, to their own agendas, not for the good of the gospel. And this is how Satan works, right? This is what he did with Judah, yeah? Uh, Or Judas. He took Judas, and if he can get one, maybe he can get the whole crew. This is what happened to Eve. He gets Eve to question, he gets Eve to question God's grace, his love, his goodness, his sovereignty, and she's infected by this lie, and then she shares that with her husband and is infected by this lie, and then, well, we all know how that trickle-down effect affected all of us. That's how he works, because he's a wolf, and he works with people, and there's wolves in sheep's closing. I had this very, in hindsight, scary situation happened this week of all times, and it must be because the Lord wanted me to use it in this sermon, uh, but it was still quite eerie. Earlier this week, Uh, I was in town here, and I had a chance encounter and made acquaintance with someone I had never met before. And it was random, um, and it was great. We struck up this nice conversation. Um, I immediately thought, he's got to be a good guy. He drives a Ford, and (laughs) he shoots the same bow that I shoot, and he's a dog lover, and all of these things. And I'll tell you, I just had this very warm conversation with him. And, and I'm thinking, I'm going to invite him to church. And, and I'm thinking, man, this is a guy I could have over for dinner. This is a guy I could be friends with. I mean, uh, I'm thinking all of these things. Well, now rewind here over this past season, my wife and I have been working with some, some people that have dealt with a predator. This predator is someone that has preyed on the weak vulnerabilities of women. And, um, it's been really hard to see the hurt that's been caused to these poor people because of this predator. Fast forward back to the situation I'm just talking about. When this particular guy that I just felt very warmly towards turned around to leave, he was getting into his rig, and I happened to notice across the back of his shirt the name of the company on his shirt. And it just I think the blood all ran right out of me. I realized the name of the company, and I made a connection with his name, which is a very common name. I didn't know his last name. And so it's really easy with the interweb to just do a little bit of quick research. And within minutes, I realized 
that I had just made warm acquaintance with the predator that has been being dealt and preying on some of these poor, vulnerable, difficult situation people within our community. And it was just like, man, I was like hook, line, and sinker. And it gives me such compassion for, on even a deeper level, for those that fall prey. Because I'll tell you what, he was smooth. I mean, smooth. If I had a man crush on him in that short period of time, (laughs) I could imagine, I could imagine how that could affect someone that's in a really tough spot in their, their life or in their marriage or in a vulnerable spot with their kids, how that person can come along and, like a sheep in wolf's clothing, come along and, and take advantage of and draw them into their, their web. And, and so that's a pretty graphic story that still gives me goosebumps at this, at this moment. And um, I think it's telling I think it's telling because that's true. Those kind of predatory situations happen all of the time um, in culture around us. But as it relates to people's souls, there are predators, there are wolves in sheep clothing that, that just look for opportunities. They look for opportunities to take advantage of these, these people. I, I thought about this guy after the fact and I'm thinking, does he, does he know the wake of destruction that he's caused, does he even care? I mean, he seems super contented and super happy and just super okay with everything. It was a shocker to me. And I think a lot of times negatives, negatives are the ones that look around and they, they, they look at everybody else as the ones that need them. And they have this ability to, to draw people into their web and to prey on them probably without even know, knowing that they're, they're doing it. But regardless, if we're going to be the church here, uh, if we're going to, to continue to help neutrals grow in their faith and their sanctification process, we have to be very careful and we have to warn the sheep of the wolves. Sometimes that means we have to name names. I've always struggled with that. We've had some people that were on the borderline wolves in our congregation that have left and I've struggled like, do I say anything? You know, obviously the elders and I, we, we, we talk and we pray. Do we say, do we, do we share with all of you? The, you know, is that something we do? And, and that's always kind of a struggle because you do have a compassionate heart for those people and their deception that they're sucked into. But we have to be very diligent as, as followers of Christ and hopefully positives to keep a close eye on, uh, on, our, on the neutrals looking for opportunities to, to help them grow in their faith and help them grow in their, their walk with Christ because the negatives are looking to pull them away. And uh, we'll continue this next week as we go on here. Um, I went through six points. I went through six points incredibly quickly. I know it's like drinking from a fire hose. Please just take one. Just take one this week. And those of you who are in growth groups, um, you get an opportunity to talk through these more more in depth, but take one of these points, and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit might have pricked you, at least with one of these, and um, allow him to work on your heart this week. So um, another thing, too, you have an opportunity right now, um, and, and honestly, I think you do really good at this. I think one of the greatest growth strategies that we have is that we have a room full of very positive people, and I think that's felt amongst newcomers and amongst visitors, so keep that up. Um, 
as, as you go out today um, and even as you, you leave the parking lot. Let's, let's uh, stand as we pray. The worship team is going to come up and close us in a song.